back to Game Study Study Buddies. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. This is episode 29, the big 2-9. Mm-hmm. And uh, today we're talking about Kashana Gray's book, Intersectional Tech, Black Users in Digital Gaming. Boom, 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 boom. It's the Metal Gear Solid noise. I, <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like either you're getting ready to do the Metal Gear Solid or like Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. No, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Boom, 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 boom. Yep. You ever seen that little uh, gif of Hans Zimmer playing the flute <laughs> at the Pirates of the Caribbean live? I don't think I have, no. Or maybe okay, I have, I but I didn't realize it was Hans Zimmer. It is. He's in like a full Napoleon outfit playing the flute. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, pre- I'm 99% sure it's actually Hans Zimmer himself. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. Although, you know, people are welcome to check that out if they want to. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're talking about this book. Uh, this is a book that is pretty new. I think it came out what, in September, maybe of this year, 2020. Uh, uh yeah, very, very recently. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. very recent. Um, um, and, um, uh, hotly anticipated mm-hmm. of a book, I think. Right. So, so Kashana Gray is someone who is pretty well known, I think in the, in the game studies. I was part of a grant one time with Kashana several years ago, but also been in conferences and things like that. Um, and we're kind of in the same universe, I think, of, of game studies, thoughts and approaches and things like that. So I was super excited about it. So, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to do it on the show is that, you know, I, I think Kashana's work is really interesting, really cool. Um, and I think people should be reading it. Um, but also hotly anticipated in the sense of um, it it's coming after several several other kind of big things that she's done. So she wrote a book. Um, I don't I don't have a release date on this, but uh, uh, race, gender, and deviance on Xbox Live, or, um, mm-hmm. which came out a few years ago. That was- 2014 and, or 2015, I think. And then Feminism in Play, which is uh, part of the trilogy of, I think, Masculinity in Play and Queerness in Play that came out from Palgrave a few years ago, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And then Woke Gaming, uh, which she uh, co-edited with David Leonard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of these books have made pretty big impacts, I would say, in game studies and kind of broached questions that game studies it has been hesitant to address maybe and i think that we there's some interesting things in this book that we're going to talk about that uh intersect with some of the other game studies books that we've read uh, recently and kind of demonstrate some um differences in approach maybe mm-hmm. uh, from there and um yeah i don't know michael what, what, what do you what do you think here no about the book just at the it? top what, what do you want to say oh i I was very excited to read this for precisely the reasons that you outlined, which is that I think uh, Kashana's work gets at, uh, I mean, frankly, right, the intersections of uh, a a lot of concerns uh, that don't get talked about a lot in general game studies. And I think, as you said, there are there are moments while reading this book where, you know, I was like, okay, so this is. This is where if uh, you could overlap this other book that we read and this other book that we read, uh, you would see, like, this is where this argument is fitting, right? It is finding something that both of these, like, uh, other sort of more ethnographic, because this is, to put this in kind of a lineage of uh, books that we have covered specifically on the show, right, this... this uh, leans more toward kind of the ethnography aspect, so something more like... Um, uh, Gaunt's book or uh, Pierce's book, mm-hmm. um, I think are kind of the the two big ethnographic texts that we read. Uh, 
and this shows sort of like what really uh like so the the thing about Gaunt's book right is that it was ethnomusicology and so uh when we talked about games it was about uh, uh street games uh uh games that uh you know kids were playing um sort of after school on their free time sort of in the you know quote unquote real world um whereas for instance pierce is talking about the ethnographies uh or like the the ways that uh communities get generated around online gaming platforms. Um, and here we can really see like what happens when these types of ways of thinking uh, an ethnography of play or game, uh, when, you, when you put those things together, uh, when, you, when you acknowledge that so much of what we do in the day-to-day -day now, because this book also feels very recent in a way mm -hmm. that... I mean, both recent and also makes me feel old in that uh, we talk about like things from 2008, but we're also talking about things from 2016. Uh, mm -hmm. So it really shows how much uh, play and technology have kind of overlapped in day to day lives in a way that I think is is super, super interesting. Um, and then also, of course, uh, touches on race in, ex in an explicit um, way uh, that a lot of the books that we have read do not. Yeah, this is the, the the kind of discussion of method here, right? Um I, I think is important. Uh the the this book is what well, where Celia the Celia Pierce book, uh Communities of Play, right, that we we read maybe earlier this year, last year, a few episodes back. Mm -hmm. Um that book was very much, you know, um uh, uh auto-ethnographic in some parts, right? Because she was a participant observer within this community. And then sometimes we'll kind of zoom out, right? And, and talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, the way ethnography shows up in this book uh, is largely through chat transcripts. Um, mm -hmm. And um, some um, writing of like meta-reflection, you know, a, a reflection on Gray's part while doing these things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, that feels like, you know, quite literally an affordance of the change of technology. Yes. Um, you, you know, she, she's able to get, you know, big chat dumps out of all this um, or just, you know, to transcribe it, I guess, too. Um, and is transcribing audio, and I'm, I'm assuming is recording this audio too as it's going on, right? And so, uh, to to some degree, this feels a lot more on the ground. Um, in that, I feel like I have a much better sense of exactly what people are saying and how they're talking about their experience than I did in in the Celia Pierce book. And that's important for this book because that's really what matters uh, for it. Um, you know, I would say that the the big key intervention for this book is. How do and this is a generalization that that is going to get uh, complicated as we read the book? But generally, how do Black women experience play and mm -hmm. games in over the past decade or so? Um, and that gets, like I said, there's chapters that deal with different aspects of that. But that's the broader thing. And um, you know, Gray is very uh, um, explicit about maintaining the language here, mm -hmm. right? So there's no editing of the language. There's no editing for grammar. Uh, you know, there's no conversion of AAVE into American Standard English. Um, there's there's a ethic of um, specificity here, and there's an ethic of being true to how people are talking about their experience. Um, I don't get a lot of a sense of the zoom out in this book, mm -hmm. and I think it's to to the book's benefit. One thing I didn't say, I guess, uh, at the top is that uh, Kashana Gray is assistant professor of communication and women's studies at the University of Illinois. At, at Chicago or Illinois, Chicago, 
I don't know. Um, there's a dash in it. You're wondering how the dash is pronounced? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, everywhere. You know, the institute I went to was GSU for a very long time. And then there was another GSU. And so we couldn't be GSU anymore. And then we had to become state. Mm. So, you know, I don't know. That dash, could, there's a lot in there. There's the politics of the dash. That's my new book. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, do we, do, do we just want to jump right into it? I suppose so, yeah. All right, let's do this. I'm putting my goggles on. Okay, mm-hmm. game studies goggles. I'm getting in the robot. Yeah, <laughs> get in the pod, say. Cameron. Mm-hmm. I'm getting in the pod. I think you wrote. Well, maybe maybe we we both wrote kind of the key definitions here at the top, right? So, um, what this book says it is doing at the very beginning is quote synthesizing theories and methods from the disciplines of feminism, critical race theory, media studies, and anthropology, among others, in a critical study of black intersectional techno culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wrote in your notes that it's, quote, the intersectional development of technological artifacts and systems uh, with, quote, marginalized users with, quote, gaming as the glue that holds the project together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I think the the important thing to sort of take away from that is that while so this this is a game study study buddies podcast, uh what is interesting to me about this formulation here at the top, though, is Gray is, you know, saying like, so gaming is essentially kind of the 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 arena of study for this particular book. But uh, the argument that she is making has applications beyond the specific affordances of uh, gaming technologies or like the social circles of people who play games. Right. This is really about uh, or like the, the idea here is to. Uh, use gaming as a way to think more broadly about uh, the ways that, uh, you know, uh, black people like, you know, communicate and uh, form communities online. So. Yeah, the, uh, at some point I, I thought I wrote the quote down, but maybe I didn't. Um, Gray is very, pretty explicit here, right? In saying that uh, video games are the backdrop of this thing, but there is nothing essential about video games here. Mm-hmm. Um you know, in in maybe chapter six, um, we could talk a little bit at the end of the introduction here about what these chapters are. But I think it's the, the last chapter. There's a little bit of a discussion about what makes video games different than other social media platforms. Um, but at, at the end of the day, really, video games are kind of a, this kind of substrate or this kind of skeleton upon which black cultural production and, and kind of intergroup communication is happening mm-hmm. here. Um, a lot of the conversations that are showing up with Gray, or, or that the Gray's putting in the book, all these conversations are not really, uh, you know, at, at their heart are not about games. Um, right. They are about things that games make black participants think about, right? Mm-hmm. And, and kind of address in the in the world. It, it's is it in the in, yeah? I think it is in the introduction here where there's there's the kind of longitudinal analysis of Tyrell. Yes. And, and, you know, all the people, this is a social science book or, well, we could talk, I guess, about method in a minute, but um, the aspects of social science stuff that are in here, you know, all these people are anonymized. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so they'll get, you know, um, pseudonymous usernames and actual names, or some of them just have, um, uh, you know, their gamer tags, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pseudo- pseudonymous. It, this is the most 2020 thing to ever say. Pseudonymous. <laughs> pseudonyms of their gamer tags yes gosh 
I can't, I both can't say that. Like I can't make my, my words make the, my mouth make the words. Mm-hmm. And also it's just, uh, you know, some cyberpunk ass stuff to say very much so. Um, but, but anyway, the reason I say that is that, that she uses this kind of conversation with the set of conversations over several years with, um, this, this person named Tyrell, um, in order to understand that initially at the beginning of their conversations, you know, he's a black, a young black man, and he doesn't understand himself even as a racialized figure, right? Like, he is not thinking of himself as a political entity, a black man. And then over the course of several years of of contact through gaming platforms, for the most part, and also Facebook Messenger and things like that, Gray is kind of tracking the way that his political awareness becomes more and more um, apparent um, and, and, you know, he's kind of, you know, growing into it or, or, or kind of, uh, you know, gaining more access to it. And it's specifically through all these kind of technologized events, right? So mm-hmm. the, uh, distribution of images of black death on social media, uh, black lives matter, uh, these kind of big technological or technologically backed movements, right. That allow communication across a plethora of platforms, those are directly related to his ability to understand himself as a politicized subject um, and a racialized subject in a particular way. Um, and so gaming is a backbone for that, right? That, that's what allows this conversation to happen between Gray and Tyrell. But gaming's not the point of that conversation. Tyrell is a great example. And I mean, this is why she pulls this out here, right? The, the first conversation uh, she has with him or not the first one she necessarily has with him but the first one she presents is from 2008 and um you know she so that conversation ends with her asking are you are there times when you have to think beyond just being um black or man and he replies i'm a person point blank but gaming lets me ignore all that that's why i'm here so that's 2008 and then their final conversation is uh, I think 2016, 2017, uh, somewhere around there. And uh, by that point, right, he says to her, like they, they're, you know, they're doing sort of periodic check-ins. And he says, I tell you, technology reminds me of my blackness all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. So that kind of uh, development uh, for him personally, but also, you know, 2008 to 2016 to 2017, like technology online life uh changed dramatically in that time uh and as we can see right like that has uh like there are racialized components to that or uh you know there are various other things happening in the culture that become inextricable from being online you are online and you are seeing these things uh and it just so happens that when you are hanging out with people uh, when you're hanging out with your friends and you're kind of of this demographic, you're talking in Xbox Live Messenger or something like that. You're talking while you're playing games. And so this is what's really fascinating about this book is that uh, games are like truly just a a sort of social site, right? It is like games are mm-hmm. an event where people come together and have conversations about their lives and about things that are happening in the world. And uh, it, it's... It all illustrates sort of one of the the overall theses of of this project that I will name when we get to it actually in the book, because we're still technically in the introduction. <laughs> the other thing I'll say here, too, is that uh, the that that platform for talking, right, is built on what she calls, um, I, I think that, oh, so this is on page three, quote, the assumed white masculine norm in gaming 
that heavily focuses on toxic, toxic masculinity, failing to capture other more marginalized uh, masculinities. And so there's this kind of like whatever your game is, right? Destiny is a game that keeps showing up in this book. Mm hmm. Um, that she does not like. This is the other thing that I like about the book, where Gray just takes a moment to let you know how much she dislikes, like, certain games. Yeah, well, because it's in her, you know, participant observation notes that she's taking, right? She's like, I do not want to play this yes. game. But, you know, you know, these guys have spent this money or these people, you know, she plays with several different groups. But I think specifically the Destiny thing is she's like, oh, this guy's spent money on this game, and so I need to play it because that's why he wants to play it, but I don't want to. <laughs> Um, I, I feel I uh, got a lot of empathy for that. Um, but uh, but so, you know, uh, the, the the not here, right, is that the games themselves are predicated on privileging a kind of apolitical normalized subject. Right. But, you know, if you've been, if you've been following along in the game study, study buddies, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, things we've read or just any, you know, kind of socially. Uh, anything in games that is actually thinking about the social construction of anything in the world uh, or that the way this, that technologies deal with the social, right? The minute you start saying things that are, are apolitical is you're just masking how they work, right? Mm -hmm. It's non-materialist. Um, and so, uh, you know, these, you know, deracialized, agnostic, apolitical platforms um, really provide a huge amount of capability for um, kind of whiteness to, to run rampant in a lot of different ways and uh, just assuming right that everyone is of a very particular type the 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 connect shows up in this book too and that's a really kind of key example of that in the history of games um or in the moment of games although i guess with the new console generation it is truly historical now but that's all to say right so it, at this core of the this game kind of production and political universe um, there is an assumed white identity. And as you're saying, right, the conversations are happening kind of on top of that, right? They're, they're kind of happening in this, this chat program. And yet they are constantly, the, these black participants are constantly having to navigate their relationship with that and then also kind of talk about it and work through it. And so all the conversations I think are really interesting because it's people being really reflective about you know, their relationship to games and games media and the world at large and all of these kind of things kind of get conflated into each other at one time. At one point later in the book, right, there's this long conversation um, with uh, a guy who who's who he and his friends get uh, accosted at the mall, uh, you know, uh, basically that's, that's for Tyrell, playing. I think. Oh, is that also it's, it's Tyrell? Still, yeah, that's that's Tyrell. That's um, he, yeah. Uh, it, does it, does that happen in the introduction though, or no, does that happen when it comes in back? Chapter two, maybe. But but you know that's a case Three. you know of of you know playing playing games while black essentially. All of that is getting kind of processed through this thing that is epiphenomenal to games, and yet is is a part of games at the same time, right? So that was a long. I'm sorry, it was, it was a long thing to talk about. But it's it's so interesting to me that this is the kind of thing that we just don't see that much in game studies, right? Every instance of conversation in this book is a conversation of meta-reflection of, uh, you know, of the black experience, political experience, vis-a-vis -vis society and games at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. And those things are inextricable. Like, you can't pull them apart. You can't abstract and say, I'm only going to talk about one of them. Because I think Gray is pointing out, that's impossible. Exactly. Uh, um, and so, you, you know, it's it's not just that it's an intersectional lens or something like that. It really is that 
without concepts like intersectionality or without um, a more robust understanding of technology, you literally cannot address what it means to be or to talk about or participate as a black gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead, sir. Oh, and I was just going to say, actually, I think this probably gets us into the first chapter and sort of the point that I brought up and then pinned for a moment. Um, to go back to what you were saying when Gray brings up, there's there's the the real focus in game studies or even talking about games culture is on uh, this emphasizing uh, toxic white masculinity. Um, mm-hmm. And while, of course, Gray is saying that that's like, she's she's not saying that that's not an issue, right? But that even, even the way that we tend to center that in our understanding of gaming culture has adverse effects on, for instance, right? Essentially this, uh, this fact that we have an entire sort of cultural arena that is not uh <clears throat> friendly to like black gamers and nevertheless there are black gamers and so mm-hmm. the question is like how like how do these people um find affordances in communities on technologies that fundamentally have not been designed with them in mind um and that leads to what uh, she calls at the end of the first chapter sort of intersectional counterpublics which are precisely these kinds of uh moments where like these these uh xbox live clans where uh uh like queer black women um can get together and like you know uh both like you know match make like look for games and so on and so forth but also kind of shoot the shit and talk through their lives and the things that are going on with them uh and that is really really cool and as i said uh as i said that this is different from like pierce's book where we commented on this uh where the the people that pierce was um working with were very much part of kind of this identity construction process we talked about how uh like you could see in like the comments that they were making on the blog post that she was writing that they were like adopting the language of the ethnographer in order to Mm -hmm. talk about themselves uh here it is very much this kind of like there's there's nothing unique about being online right Mm-hmm. it's just like this is just where we are this is what we're doing and this is like how we're talking through it and in that way i think the book speaks very very strongly to uh you know just the ways that uh the internet and internet and digital technologies have uh interpenetrated like day-to-day life in in a way that feels very it feels very uh, uh timely in in a way that uh, i don't think a lot of game studies books necessarily that I've read that we've been reading for this podcast, at least because they've been kind of older have felt because uh, it, it really, for me registers that kind of shift in the ways that these things uh, exist in our, in our day-to-day spaces. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't really think about that while reading it, but I think that's a really good point, especially because, you know, so much of this book takes place on, um, or, you know, the conversations that get excerpted and kind of talk through take place either on, the digital platforms that come with consoles, right? So Xbox Live or uh, PlayStation Network uh, or things like Facebook Messenger, right? And so the ubiquity of social media and just the tech that comes with the console, right? So if you're going to if you're going to buy um you know uh, uh any you know an Xbox game to play online and you're going to pay the whatever 8 bucks a month or whatever it is for Xbox Live, then you are going to have access to this kind of chat platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this, as opposed to, you know, say the Pierce book, um, if, if you're going to get on, uh, um, 
um, what you know, Uru, mm-hmm. right? You're an early adopter. Mm-hmm. Like you, you've got stuff going on in your life, right? So you, you know, you can pay for internet at, the, at that time. You know, early two thousands. Um, you you have a computer that can run it. Um, you know, there are all these kinds of things that we talked about with that book that kind of had to do with the ways that people self-select into this kind of online, um, um, I, you know, life, culture, lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, as opposed to the people in this book who are just part of an online culture at this mm-hmm. point. Oh, oh sh- shout out to uh, Maddie and Paul from Kotaku, yeah. <laughs> or uh, formerly, uh, both both formerly at this point of Kotaku, who show up uh, at the very beginning of this chapter, because chapter one begins with Sonic Fox, mm-hmm. uh, the um, fighting game player. And so, yeah, uh, uh, you know, Gray is talking about um, Sonic Fox's tweet um, <laughs> that, that basically is just like, you know, I'm, I'm a queer furry. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm everything a Republican hates, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm the best gamer on the planet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's not the exact tweet, but it's pretty close. It's like I, I'm a I'm a queer black furry. Yeah, and this is uh, of course, like two months or something, like one month after Ninja shows up on the cover of ESPN magazine. So yeah. right here at the jump, uh, we have kind of this very stark illustration of uh what is sort of happening in the scene versus like what is what is going to be pre- presented as like sort of the face of the scene in an older established legacy media right mm-hmm. ninja who like famously will not appear on a stream with a woman mhm and who has said the n word i think now multiple times on stream but at least one time <sighs> um you know rapping the the n word um but yeah and and so uh you know, Gray comes out and, you know, with this kind of Sonic Fox versus Ninja or, you know, um, you know, here are the two kind of poles of of the world of gaming here. Right. Mm-hmm. And says the only way for us to really figure this out. Right. To talk about it um, and, and to understand how, you know, the kind of hyper visibility that's going to show up as a kind of a key term throughout the rest of the book. But Sonic Fox's hyper visibility and the way that they exist kind of in the world um, that you need this concept of intersectional tech to kind of get at it. Um, on 24, we get uh, a definition here. So, um, uh, quote, intersectional, intersectional tech can be understood as the visual, textual, and or oral engagement of the black body originated from the digital and moving into the physical or vice versa. Um, and so this is kind of like what we were talking about. You know, we've, we've kind of previewed a little bit of the book uh, in our conversations, but that conversation with Tyrell, right, of... of um, having a, uh, you know, being profiled by mall security mm-hmm. in uh, in his day-to-day life and then coming to Xbox Live to have a chat and then coming to, uh, I think they continue their conversation on Facebook Messenger and then they're playing Destiny and other people show up and they kind of have a conversation about what happened that day. Um, that That both the technologies that are involved here are radically diversified in a lot of different ways. And that uh, by virtue of being, um, you know, racialized and specifically black in this instance, um, those systems of communication and of, you know, um, uh, interpolation, like kind of in that Althusserian style, Mm -hmm. those things are all having different impacts on on Tyrell than they would on me, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that there's no strong dividing line between what is happening on the internet and what is happening in the physical space, because all of those things are working through a system of racial or a racialized system, uh, you know, systemic racism. 
Um, intersectionality here uh, kind of gets uh, defined in a lot of different ways. I, th- I think in your notes, you know, you, you uh, she she uh, Gray gives this kind of gloss that is working through the big figures here. So Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks, Audrey Lord, and the Kambahi River Collective. Um, you know, uh, if, if, if we're going to be strict Crenshawians about it, I don't know if that's a term, but it, you know, if we were right, the way that that gets explained, um, and, and the reason that shows up in Kimberly Crenshaw's work, um, legal work is because, uh, or the reason that intersectionality is kind of, um, um, invented as a key term or brought up as a key term in Crenshaw's work is that there are lots of court cases that are happening in the 1970s and 1980s in which someone's position, specifically a woman's position, um, or, or, well, black women's position, um, cannot be brought under the law. They can't be, uh, properly judged in these court cases because they cannot demonstrate that she is, uh, I, that the, these plaintiffs are either being, um, uh, discriminated against solely because they are women or solely because they are black. Mm-hmm. And so Crenshaw says, well, so we obviously need to think about the intersections of these categories because there is a a legal gap that's being proliferated here. Um, And it means that quite literally black women cannot have representation underneath the law. They can't be thought by the law Mm -hmm. uh, without uh, thinking about the intersection. And so Kamahi River Collective is is before this, of course, and and, uh, so is some of the work by Lord and some of the work by Hooks. But uh, all of these kind of get pointed at uh, as, um, um, you know, c- kind of critical um, locations uh, for understanding how this gets uh, talked about. Intersectionality in a broad sense is just how do we look at places where compounding oppressions or compounding systemic violences are hitting individuals or groups um, in ways that are multiplying, mm-hmm. you know, so so not oppressed simply on. Uh, racial grounds, not oppressed simply on uh, gendered grounds um, or uh, sexuality or anything like that, uh, but all of those things uh, all at once. But uh, but yeah, so uh, but kind of taken as the the primary method here. Yeah, and that's sort of actually, uh, I think there's a way to at this point sort of talk about the general structure of the book because uh, mm-hmm. unlike other books that we've read where it does have kind of very clear, like here is my theory, here is my method and here are my case studies. Um, there there's kind of that arc to this book. Uh, but really the chat, like the, there's an introduction that lays out a lot of stuff. Uh, the first chapter is dedicated to what we just talked about, which is the, um, uh, what, what is intersectionality and what does it mean? And kind of, uh, this digital context with these overlapping technologies and so on. Um, mm-hmm. the next chapter then, uh, is sort of about the historical context behind, uh, racialized experiences. And then especially like the ways that those experiences get narrativized or, uh, uh mediated or especially transmediated. That's a term that comes up in this book a lot because we're going to talk about not just games again. Uh, this is people are having conversations while they're on gaming platforms and they're playing games. Uh, but, and this is one of the other reasons why this book feels like very fresh to me. Uh, they're also talking about like, what's the Twitter discourse of the day, right? What are the, what are the, um, popular gifs that are going around, uh, in in that sort of, uh, techno culture, uh, kind of aspect. Um, so how does, how does 
that contemporary uh, development fit into these these older legacies. Um, and then we get into kind of what are more like what are more the traditional case study chapters that look at like here is here is a group of um, black men. Right. And here uh, is a group of uh, like black women and that sort of thing. So we are kind of near the end of the preliminary uh, chapters and then the other ones will be. I guess more case studies and we'll probably speak less about the case studies unless there are particular moments where we want to talk about, like we might talk about one or two anecdotes from those. Uh, but I suspect as is usual, most of our attention will be devoted to laying out kind of the, the intellectual and theo theoretical grounding that's going on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, so speaking of theoretical uh, grounding here, um, this is still in chapter one, but but I think it will be useful for talking about chapter two. Michael, what is symbolic violence? Uh, <clears throat> symbolic violence is... Uh, I did not write this down in my notes, so I can't give you specifically what it is that she said. <laughs> I can't give you exactly <laughs> what it is that Gray writes. Uh, but symbolic violence is uh, one way of thinking about violence that is not you know, getting punched or physically harmed, right? Symbol symbolic violence is the performance of the way that shouting a racial slur on Xbox Live, for example, is symbolic violence in the way that uh, it it is not uh, sort of physically confrontational, uh, but it establishes a kind of, uh, let's say, an environment, right? Um, where certain types of violence are that like they they well the way she's the what she says right is that um symbolic violence on these platforms is is not misrecognized it is normalized right it's the sort of thing where suddenly someone can can do these things on xbox live and it becomes a part of the quote-unquote culture right mm -hmm. so you end up with uh these techno cultures like xbox live that have a a uh incredible amount of symbolic violence uh, that is normalized against uh, black players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a, uh, you know, this obviously happens after this book. Um, uh, uh, both, well, it might have actually happened since the book has come out, but certainly after it was kind of locked and ready to go, is the uh, the now euphemism of using gamer word. Yes. Right, so... Uh, uh, you know, the the language of, and I think this actually showed up originally around Ninja, right? So a quote-unquote oh, heated gaming yeah. moment. Oh, no, uh, it was a PewDiePie, right? Um, had a quote-unquote heated gaming moment and said the N-word. Mm -hmm. um, and now within games culture, uh, people just say the gamer word mm -hmm. um, instead of typing the N-word, right? Which is obviously not allowed on chat platforms and things like that. But the gamer word is, is perfectly fine. Um and so, you know, this is, uh, you know, you wrote down this quote from 32, right, that symbolic violence in gaming culture, in a general sense, is, quote, not misrecognized, but normalized. But, but you know, th that's just a meme at this point, right? That That's just this, like, thing that people put in. And I think that even kind of, um, I, I mean, I've seen, like, lefty-leaning gamers using that ironically. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've had to be pretty, pretty hardline on that. Um, but but I, I think that's you know what what Gray is demonstrating here is that this is a system at work. Uh, this is a system that takes racialized uh, you know violent structures, symbolic uh, and, and I guess non symbolic as well, um, and then just 
presses them into kind of the firmament of what it means to be a gamer um, and what it means to play games. And so it just becomes part of the structure of day-to-day life. Mm, Historical narratives? Yes, historical narratives. Uh, This begins with uh, the discussion of 2016 as the year of the black gamer, uh, which is actually... 2016 seems so recent and also so far far gone in the past by this point um but going over and this actually is this was really something um 2016 saw the release of uh mafia 3 um Watch Dogs 2 battlefield 1 uh assassin's creed 4 and then uh not specifically a game but something that comes up kind of uh in a couple of places here um is the the luke cage uh netflix series yeah, it's really interesting that Luke Cage shows up so much in this book, and, and I think really is a strong demonstration that that like you can't it if for whatever reason right Gray tried to block that out, you know, just tried to excise all conversations about Luke Luke Cage to keep it all about gaming, mm-hmm. it would tell such a partial story about how about how, <clears throat> sorry <laughs> getting choked up about it about Luke Cage. Um, uh, but, uh, it would tell such a partial story, right. About, um, how these gamers are seeing their experiences in games and other media, right. That there's no strong dividing line for them. Right. They talk about both like Watch Dogs 2 and Luke Cage in the same breath, right. Those, they recognize mm-hmm. those as kind of this part of the same cultural current. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's got to be intersectional tech and not, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, the, I don't intersectional games, I guess <laughs> I was trying to think of a more clever title than that, but you know what I mean? Like it has to be about the systems of tech that unify these things and afford these conversations. Um, and this kind of transmedia, um, experience of black representation and black conversation, mm-hmm. the way that the, the kind of year of the black gamer gets talked about here is both as a positive and a negative or both as a benefit and a burden, maybe mm-hmm. might be a better way of putting it. Um, you, you know, Gray and anyone who writes about race and especially blackness says this, but just, you know, in case, uh, you know, a listener has never done any reading in this field, right? Blackness is not a monolith. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no one black experience. There is no one black opinion that is shared among all black people, uh, transnationally. I, I hope that should be clear, but, but just to state that. And so, um, you know, these are uh, stories that both have a plurality of experiences being represented within them, like, you know, in the in the um, the plots of the thing. And they also come from a plurality of context. And in these chat logs that Gray is putting in, there's a plurality of kind of responses mm-hmm. to them. Um, you know, some people uh, find them uh, liberatory and cool, and some people are willing to make compromises uh, in order to kind of celebrate them. And other people are just not. You know, um, and I think we see a lot of those kind of opinions coming through. Um, but something that Gray notes, right, is that all of these um, narratives, even though they're inclusive of blackness, rely on stereotypes mm-hmm. uh, of blackness. Um, so uh, either in criminality itself or just simply that uh, specifically black men come into like this hero story through like a bad encounter with the police. Right. Um, and so the Walking Dead shows up here. Um, there, there are quite there are a few kind of individual games that are talked about, you know, specifically in this chapter. Um, and what's so in, what was really interesting to me about this was this conversation about the Walking Dead, which you know came out quite a few years earlier in 2012. Um, but the the these players that that Gray is excerpting here are talking about Lee from the Walking Dead. 
and they're talking about how you know he's a college professor right mm-hmm. and uh you know that that's like good representation you know quote unquote and uh but then this other player is like yeah but it, we're introduced to him like having to you know he's in the back of a police car right that right. even in this like you know good complicated representation of a black man that's happening in the walking dead it's still the the social situation is determined by this kind of um white oriented gaze that only sees a black man as being introducible in the story as imbricated or in conflict with the police mm-hmm. um and so there you know these players are trying to kind of negotiate that um and and kind of figure it out you know um how that works and i think uh, gray does a really interesting kind of methodological thing here where where she writes out kind of the the plot of the story which is you know a black man's in the back of a police car um the police car crashes and he kills a cop right mm-hmm. which is factually what occurs in the thing right and then says well if you actually pay attention to it right it's uh, you know the cop turns into a zombie lee's got to defend himself all this kind of stuff and so there's this kind of like fantastical or, or you know a white fantasy plot oriented part of it and then the rea- the discourse i guess you know story versus discourse that we've talked about several <laughs> times on the show but you know the story is one thing and then the discourse uh really uh shows a much more complicated story about blackness um and uh, anyway so so the people she's experting are trying to kind of work, walk through that and basically are trying to determine you know what are are they willing to um give up or cede in order to get representation mm-hmm. um you know you know what is it okay for lee to begin this way if we get to a you know, more varied or, uh, you know, one of them says he's just a dude, right? Like Lee is just a guy and his race obviously matters in his life, but it is not the only way the game understands him. Um, and that's, that's put in contrast with a few other characters, um, who are just racial stereotypes. Yeah, no, that's, uh, like the, the, the thing that is interesting about the, the walking dead example, right. Is precisely that, uh, the, the character of Lee like grows very much beyond uh, that initial setup. But the, the word that gets used, uh, uh, forgive me if you already said it right, but like uh, that the, the encounter with police is used to like authenticate his racial identity in kind of this sort of narratological sense um, for like a white audience. Right. And the, the, the conversation that gray excerpts uh one of the one of the players is just like he's like why why don't we start on the college campus right and it's not Mm -hmm. uh it's they have this conversation where they're working through like this sucks right like why aren't we on the college campus but also like i'm glad that this ends up being pulled off as well as it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) right and in another sort of i think illustrative like parallel example is the guy who talks about like uh tyler perry in Tyler Perry movies where he's kind of like, I don't like these movies, but I kind of feel like, you know, like if, if Tyler Perry can do his thing, like maybe someday, like we'll get something, you know, better, right. That there's something to build off there. There's a kind of, uh, well, strategic, right. Is the word, right. You, you get to see, uh, uh, these guys like working through kind of like their like way of conceiving of cultural strategies together. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, in in stark contrast to something like uh, Cole from the Gears of War series 
or uh, CJ from Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, which rely on much, let's say, broader uh, and frankly, like more racist uh, inclinations in in their ways of like so the the San Andreas is a really good example uh, that Gray gets into because see if CJ in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas his entire life is built from in, in classic rock star fashion built from images of like urban black life pulled from movies um, and then there is in addition to that right so we have kind of the 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 simulacrum of, of a kind of aesthetic, right? An early 90s, like, Los Angeles um, aesthetic. Uh, but then the game itself uh, has no real interest or understanding in, like, under no real interest in pointing out how, like, people have, have lives like this because the world is set up in such a way that it produces, like, these socioeconomic and racial barriers and so on and so forth, right? Like there is just a, because the first thing you do when uh, your first mission in San Andreas, right, is you're, you're back home after, uh, is, did CJ get out of prison? I think he's been in prison. Um, uh, uh, San Andreas is not the GTA, it's the GTA game I did not play. Oh. Um, I was working at Wendy's when it came out. I didn't have time. Okay. Well. I never went back. Yep. You <laughs> never went back. I just never went back. I'm working my way to it. You know, if you're paying attention to the, uh, uh, you know, I played Grand Theft Auto 3. It's on the Range Touch YouTube page. And, uh -huh. I, and I'm slowly, very slowly and behind. I'm working my way through Vice City. And then I'll play uh, San Andreas. Mm -hmm. I just never got there. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, the, the, the first the first mission in San Andreas, like the tutorial mission, is like steal a bicycle. Um, so, like, the first thing that, uh, you know, your character does upon getting out of jail and going home is then go commit more crime. And this is, mm -hmm. weirdly enough, this in of itself has become a meme uh, recently. Have you seen this? It's the it's the um, image of CJ, like, walking down the... Because he doesn't... I don't... I, I'm pretty sure I, I have remembered the context for this correctly. Like, he doesn't really want to have to steal a bicycle, but they're like... His friends are like, you know, you gotta steal the bicycle if you're gonna... <laughs> get wherever we're going and so if we're says, gonna recreate boys in the hood later yeah um and so he says like you know like you know here we go again or something is yep. what he says um and uh, this in and of itself yes. has become a meme uh mm. and uh one of the things that gray is kind of pointing out right is that uh uh she doesn't talk about that meme because i think that meme like is is genuinely uh it got big at least very recently uh but that uh because of the way that these stories are built out of uh like tropic tropological images or like stereotypes and especially like uh you know very racialized stereotypes there's just this like uh, a repetition of oh okay like this is what this this is what san andreas is going to be like because this is what 90s uh like gangster movies looked like uh and like 90s sort of west coast hip-hop all of that is like we're just going to take that and put it together with none of the kind of uh material or systemic thinking or like any anything that sort of underpinned it uh and so there is this real tension between uh recognizing something as sort of a tired stereotypes so something like authenticating uh lee's blackness uh by having him have a a bad uh by, by starting him off right by introducing him uh to to the player uh through a bad interaction with the police um and then trying to figure out well even so right what is what is here that uh 
maybe gestures forward to, to something better or something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you brought up Coltrane from Gears of War, and I am absolutely fascinated with Coltrane. Um, you know, the, the way that, that he's talked about here is, uh, you know, as a, um, you know, a black parodic character. I mean, he, you know, he's straight up minstrelsy um, mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, Grace says that here. But, uh, you know, I recently played through those games kind of at my leisure. I was just kind of working through them slowly. And the way that over the course of that series, he becomes more parodic mm-hmm. and becomes even more of just a man who played football one time. Uh, I think in Gears of War 3, there is a long-form hallucination that he has where he's playing football. Um, and and he only talks in football metaphors. So, and So I checked out on Gears of War after playing a little bit of the first game. Mm-hmm. This sounds... I I know you're not making it up, but it sounds like so made up. Like this sounds so impossibly <laughs> such a bad idea. Oh my god! <laughs> would it would it sound even more made up if I told you that the game skips forward like twenty years and uh, Coltrane is still around and he's in a giant robot and he's still talking about football? Oh my god! Would it would it surprise? So in anyway, but you know, I, I and I'm not bringing that up to kind of belabor the the point or anything. But uh, th- this character is such a, you know, emblematic of what's being talked about here that f- for me, what's interesting, I guess, is that the stereotypes that are being talked about here in relationship, especially to criminality and the police around black men, mm-hmm. like, you know, obviously it's happening with Lee and it's happening um, with a bunch of these uh, games that were, we talked about at the beginning. But there's even something more insidious to me about the kind of Coltrane example, which is that this team does not know what to do with a black man and hasn't figured it out over the course of 12 years. And so instead of broadening him as a character and giving him more things to think about or do, or even just, you know, kind of retiring him out of the narrative to bring in a more diverse cast, which they've, they kind of tried to do, I think in the last couple games, um, instead of doing that, they've just doubled down on the stereotype itself because the stereotype is like a fun gaming meme. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, this is, uh, you know, yet another example of that not misrecognized but normalized symbolic violence, right? Exactly. That, that you know, the double, the constant doubling down is, and, and not growing um, mm-hmm. is, is, you know, a huge part of the problem. And I'm really just repeating Gray in that point, but I think it's a useful example to think about that in case you're not familiar with the other games. Um I was going to say the other thing that I think is really important there, because this is one of the one of the conversations she excerpts um, that is really, I think, illuminating here is one of one of her narrators. This is, um, I think, in uh, some ethnographic work, uh, they're called informants, but uh, Gray makes the this is part of her thing at the beginning. She calls them narrators. So one of her narrators says, I hate when white boys play coal. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a little bit of back and forth. And she she asks, uh, you know, you know, what do you mean? Um, and one of the other guys explains, they start mocking how he talks and like go overboard like white folks always do. Right. So it's not just the developers and the people who make this game or rather like the what you, the words you just described in uh, in the arc of this character, how he has been written and developed also apply to the ways that uh, these players understand white guys playing this character right that Mm. that uh the the going going over going over the top going extra right it's the precise same kind of dynamic of uh not necessarily as you put it right the the 
designers and developers maybe didn't know what to do. Um, but I get the sense, you know, for from here, right? The players know exactly what they're doing. The players know that yeah. they are like engaging essentially in minstrelsy because the the complaint, right, is that when uh, white boys are playing Cole, they just start shouting the N word all the time. Yeah, and the you know this kind of and I'm being as charitable as humanly possible to these you know developers, right? I mean, there there's a a complete world in which it it is not a uh, a deadlock or rigorly mistake, right? It is a purposeful thing. Um, you know, I I have no interiority or way of knowing that, right? But I think what you're demonstrating, and 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 I appreciate bringing the the quote from the book in, is that no matter you know what the intent is or how they're writing call or anything like that, right? Ultimately, what's written into the firmament of the Gears of War multiplayer experience is an opportunity that prompts white people to do racial caricatures, right, of mm -hmm. uh, AAV. I realize we've said AAVE a couple times, and uh, we have a, an international audience who might not know what that word means. Uh, yeah. It means African-American vernacular English, um, which is... Uh, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that the word ebonics went around mm -hmm. um, is kind of a, a key term. Um, but it literally is just accounting for the different ways that different racial groups, uh, I mean, specifically here, African-Americans, the way that they speak it is um, unique. But but yeah, so there's this kind of uh, platforming of uh, racial performance, mm -hmm. you know, racial menstrual performance by making Cole into a menstrual character they provide the opportunity for white players to do the same. Mm -hmm. um, there's a long engagement here with Nicholas Mirzoff, um, and uh, what gets called the complex of visuality. If you haven't read the book, The Right to Look, that's, that's like a key book in visual studies, visual culture studies, that kind of thing. Um, and it's about the, the changing modes of visuality um, from the 1600s until now, basically, mm -hmm. uh, and how they're racialized and how they're classed and, and uh, a lot of different things. It's a very, really interesting book, um, but that, that gets a lot of play here. Um, and the chapter ends with this discussion of uh, Rust. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I was aware of this happening, but I was um, uh, not aware of the memes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which are horrifying. Yeah. So Rust is a game uh, where you are uh, when, when you when you first boot it up, your character that you're playing as is procedurally generated. And one of the things that happens uh, in procedural generation is your character may end up being a, a, a black person um, and white gamers did not really like this and so made a bunch of racist memes about that mm -hmm. right uh just like the very like and sort of the, the the point uh right that i think gray is trying to to pull out here is that the in in a in a system of procedural generation of just it, it just whatever could happen right there's just this is just a system putting things together the fact that it might slot you into uh having to play as a black character is so unconscionable right it it, it like wounds uh whiteness in such a way that it results in this reaction of uh racist joking right like the, mm -hmm. essentially like a thing that we've touched actually a, a thing that we've touched on a couple of points now right is sort of the 
the way that racism seems to work is like through memes and through joking. Not in the case necessarily of of the some of these described Rust memes, but what's interesting, I guess, about this too is that a lot of it is prepackaged memes that are just brought into this specific use case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I. I can't think of I can't think of many like quote unquote homegrown memes right that, that emerge out of this, but more that the uh, you know meme culture right just shows up to kind of reproduce a uh, you know a, a really conservative viewpoint here, or, or I mean, and I don't mean conservative as in like the conservative party, but I mean conservative in the sense of we do not like change, <laughs> you know, uh, reserved, uh, you know. Um, uh, anti-movement in in some ways um, they, they just come in to reinforce that right they come and proliferate in order to repeatedly say um, you know we don't want the thing to change in any kind of way right well to, to, to force whiteness back into the center right is really yeah 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 in the implied normative you know uh, but before whiteness was implied and then mm-hmm. rust changes its kind of proc gen thing in order to make everyone i think it was based on your steam id if i'm remembering correctly um you know to to just randomize what people look like in the world and they're saying no that implied whiteness should always have been at the center and it should come back and in fact we will create such a toxic space that uh our viewpoint has to be heard mm-hmm. um and so, you know, this is going to get developed uh, over the course of the rest of the book, too, right? But there is always kind of, you know, if intersectional tech is a way of talking about the way that that black people are navigating these spaces, it's it's navigating, as you said earlier, right? It's navigating in relationship to particular structures, and those particular structures are implied white, implied male. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're, they're not just passively defending themselves. Those structures are not just like... Hey, whatever happens, happens. You know, uh, we'd prefer things not change, but they're extremely backlash, mm. um, uh, you know, aggressive. Um, and that shows up through the rest of the book and that shows up in the conclusion as well. And I, we can kind of talk about it there. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, the those are the beginning chapters. The The next couple of chapters are, again, sort of closest to the case studies, but they aren't exactly case studies, not in the way that these have shown up in, in other books. Um, rather, they are sort of centered around particular topics. So chapter three, for instance, is uh, about uh, black uh, masculine identity, um, specifically. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is uh, for just, I believe it's the next one that is about... Uh, yes, black uh, women. So um, we'll we'll cover these as we get to them, but just so we know kind of what the arc is from here on out. Uh, chapter three is hypervisible blackness and invisible narratives, black gamers co-creating transmediated masculine identity. And this begins uh, again with a discussion among um, a couple of black men talking about uh, both Luke Cage and also, um, I think this is just post- uh, uh, Ferguson after after the killing of, of Michael Brown um, and they're discussing mm-hmm. the hashtag if they gunned me down and the the point of this right is it, it again it's it's some guys talking about you know Luke Cage and sort of the the I mean the incredible uh, idea right of of a bulletproof black man right that he is uh that is he is a superhero and he is a a black man in a hoodie who cannot be shot um so Mm -hmm. there's that on the one hand right that emerging in 20 2016 um but then also uh through their discussion of if they gun me down uh you know they're talking about like oh well 
if if I were shot, this is the type of picture that would show up. Uh, you know, this is this is what like the this is the way the media is. It's uh, geared toward white people. Um, and this entire conversation is here, essentially. So Gray can say, like, look, right, uh, these men um, are aware of what she calls this is a quote from page 63, the mediated narrative skewing their existence. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, not only are they aware of them, uh, but like these types of conversations are how they work their work their way through them and articulate them. Um, and to some extent, uh, not necessarily come to terms that makes it sound like they're like making peace, but sort of um, come to an understanding of what their positionality is with regard to these larger uh, cultural issues. Yeah. How do people live their life in, in uh, you know, a violent and oppressive system? Right. Um, you know, I, I think I, I wrote this in my notes a little bit further down, but but I think this is, you know, maybe an appropriate place to put it here. Right. Like what's interesting is if you spend enough time in some of these like all chat, you know, experiences. So not recently, but a few years ago, I spent quite a lot of time playing Grand Theft Auto five online and just kind of listening to what people are talking about in all chat. Mm -hmm. I, I always find that fascinating. I play PUBG with all chat on so I can hear people yelling at me. Um, uh, so, you know, they, it affords radically different experiences, right? And what's interesting to me, uh, or, or what I really about halfway through this book got to and was like, oh, dang, is that I, I have obviously not been around for like intimate, you know, intergroup communication, uh, you know, among black men who are like talking about uh, Luke Cage, but I've certainly been in these all chat gaming situations where, um, these uh, racialized structures are both present and then being talked about in, in mm -hmm. a different kind of way or, you know, being discussed and kind of worked out. And um, what's so interesting to me about this book, and, you know, I think this is kind of the implied, um, you know, whiteness of, you know, academia, the whiteness of game studies maybe, but I'd never thought about the fact that those gaming experiences that I've seen are just not represented in the literature anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um you know, you, there is nowhere in game studies, or there are very few places in game studies, to point to this kind of conversation um, and listening to people working out the realities of, um, you know, the relationship between games and social media and the way they understand those representations and just kind of having to make peace with it mm -hmm. um, or, or, or maybe not having to, but deciding to make peace with it or just stopping the conversation. Um, and, and so I, you know, I think that's a big part of, um, the value of the thing. And I also really appreciate that gray is, uh, showing her kind of, uh, complicated relationship with it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I really thought about that in, cause this is where, when I was talking earlier about the VR booth story, um, uh, you know, so, uh, Tyrell, uh, goes to the mall. Uh, he's with his friends. They're in like a VR gaming store, like a VR arcade, mm -hmm. and they're being too loud. He thinks, you know, it's unclear. And the, the cops show up, mm -hmm. the mall cops show up and like some of his friends or maybe even he ends up in handcuffs. Um, I think it's a little unclear. And I also uh, don't remember 100%. And then he's coming back and he's kind of like working through this, you know, uh, in chat with uh, uh, with Gray and then with other people, too. And, um, uh, what, what he ends up talking about here, right. Is like, he doesn't know what he was supposed to do or is supposed to do. And gray ends up saying like, you know, she's writing her participant notes here. She's like, you know, I, I would say to him, make a report, but also 
you know, what is that going to do? And also, is that overstepping my bounds as a researcher? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's multiple levels of negotiation happening here in order to figure out how do you get to an outcome for this deeply racialized situation, you know, structurally racist uh, situation. Um, And it doesn't it's not like it goes somewhere. Right. We do not have a happy ending for this. And I think it is so crucial that the book doesn't try to knit these things up neatly because they are unknittable. Mm -hmm. Right. They are ongoing social dynamics um, that that are not neatly addressed in, you know, one instance and then we're done. Um, uh, But but yeah, but that's all to say. Right. I, I think that a big chunk of the the power of the book is in representing un unending systems and then allowing you to look at them and the slice of them and understanding how they intersect with all these things that we are taking for granted uh, a lot of the time right exactly uh the i mean the the conversation with with um uh tyrell uh he he says, you know, I think it's the first this is on page sixty five I think it's the first time I was scared of being black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she asks, you know, like, tell me more about that. And he says, you know, it's he says, well, it's like nothing I did or said worked. They wouldn't listen to me. So and as you said, uh, it's not clear because I don't think they are like, I don't think he and his friends are given a reason for why security shows up. Or at least if there's a reason given, it's not communicated them communicated to them in a way that, you know, sticks or makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. and they do end up getting handcuffed, uh, and then they, you know, go into the, this is when they play destiny and, and gray is like, uh, they, they like this game, so I'll go along with it, but I don't understand mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. but then she listens to them sort of talk it out together, uh, you know, uh, Tyrell and his friends. And one of them eventually says, you, you know, he, he sort of, you know, keeps asking or he, he's wondering why, right. He's sort of, you know, wondering like, why did this happen? Like, what could I have done? What did I do? That sort of thing. And then, uh, one of them says, um, they don't need a reason you're black. That's reason enough. You just got to keep it moving. So step up and be a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, gray kind of intercedes at this point and says, you know, it, it would be very easy for to look at that that step up and be a man thing. Uh, it, it would be very easy to look at that and be like, ah, so like you know, just confirm your your masculinity and lean into all of these various negative stereotypes that you might have about uh, people who are are manning up or whatever. Uh, but she points out, and she said this earlier in the book as well, right? By centering sort of white toxic masculinity we actually devalue alternative forms of masculinity and that there is you know a way in which black masculinity can be formulated as a a, a a safeguard against this kind of uh attention from from the police or from the state from society uh so you know we, we we don't part of being intersectional here, right? Is that we don't want to step into this trap where like affirming masculinity is all always already some sort of like patriarchal self-defeat. Yeah. And it's another instance. Uh, and I didn't think about this while reading, but, but the, to kind of hear you talk through it, it's another instance of not ceding the domain to, to the norm. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is just kind of rephrasing what you just said. Right. But, but you know, the, if the whole book is, these are people who are trying to figure out how to use technologies that have bias and systemic racism shot through them, right? And yet they are living their lives and like having fun and uh, negotiating them in complex ways. Then we can't just be like, well, masculinity, you know, compromised, 
you know, throw it out the door. Mm -hmm. We have to recognize that also as a site of negotiation. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it's a place where, you know, in this instance, right, be a man is, a, is actually a place for doing some pretty deep introspection, it seems like, um, with reconciling the self between, you know, mall-based anti-blackness, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the police and things of that nature. And then, uh, you know, how do you fit into that and, and where do you want to stand on it? Um, which is not normally when we say the word masculinity, I don't think deep introspection is where we normally <laughs> go. <laughs> um, uh, you know, or, and that's certainly not the stereotype of it. So I, you know, I, I really appreciate, I think what's so interesting about the kind of the intersectional theory that's being, that's happening here is that gray is at every instance willing to go one level deeper than what we would think, mm -hmm. you know, it would work like. And to be frank, I've, you know, I've, been teaching a course around uh, these kind of themes this semester. I actually taught the first couple chapters of this book earlier this semester, and that's not necessarily where all the intersectional literature goes, right? Um, there, there are some places in where the kind of baseline summary of when you think the word masculinity, that's as, as deep as it wants to go. So uh, while, you know, I think we've been pretty clear uh, so far in talking about the book that this is pushing game studies in a particular kind of way, I actually do think that this is also pushing the kind of uh, intersectional theory in other ways too um, that might not be super apparent if you're not deep in that literature. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I really appreciated this kind of example kind of going both ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sort of ties in with, well, actually, do you want to talk about the Friday the 13th stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, we can talk about it really briefly yeah. just because in some ways it's so, um, like, I, I am not in the Friday the 13th culture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever that is. You know, Friday the 13th is a, they have a, they have a particular An name. asymmetrical multiplayer game? There we go. Yeah, asymmetrical. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, but right, so one person plays uh, Jason of Friday the 13th, and <clears throat> I think four players play, like, the teens, mm -hmm. and they've got to get out of the scenario, and Jason's got to kill them. You know, you can imagine it. Uh, and there have been a bunch of these these games in a general sense. Dead by Daylight is basically the same idea. Mm -hmm. um, and without the Friday the 13th license. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, she tells a story about um, Friday the 13th players who wear the Friday the 13th Part 2 outfit, which is Jason looking through a burlap sack. Mm -hmm. And then they play that character as a Klansman. So they call it like the Klan outfit. Mm -hmm. And then they just kill the non-white characters. Yes. And this was, uh, in fact, uh, such a... It, it, it's like an, a metagame that emerges and is at least popular enough that there is like a Twitter hashtag dedicated to uh, matchmaking for people who want to play this specific type of game. And the hashtag is uh, make Camp Crystal Lake great again. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it gets explicitly connected to, um, you know, ongoing political movements um, and is explicitly white supremacist, mm -hmm. you know, in its um, in its construction. Uh, and so she kind of has a conversation with someone, uh, with one of the participants about this and about what's kind of going on. The conversation is, like, important because uh, the, the narrator doesn't 
know what's going on at first right i think it's yeah i think yeah, it's yeah. him i think it's a he um he is uh talking about like he like playing the game and the game is not working the way it's supposed to where jason is supposed to be hunting all of the all of the you know campers or whatever uh like he realizes like this guy is only hunting certain people like what the hell is going on and then he finds out like what was happening, right? And it's hor- it's horrifying just on on every possible level, but also just finding out in this way, right, that you have been conscripted into this explicitly white supremacist metagame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, both against your will, right, but also you're completely ignorant right to it happening right and that's part of the point right like that is like for the people on the other end right that is part of like what is uh fun or funny or rewarding to them about this is the fact that they are doing they are doing that symbolic violence yeah yeah 100 um then then this kind of moves into a conversation about different modes of black male streaming Mm mm-hmm um, and she kind of sets up two different streamers. And again, these are pseudonyms. Uh, I'm not going to try to say the word pseudonym. Pseudonymous. pseudonymous. I I, yeah, I just can't do it. My, it's uh, it's the Windspear Hills. of. <laughs> it only took multiple years for me to be able to say that. And I have to say it slow. I don't know. There's just certain words. Um, but, uh, but these are pseudonyms, right? So she kind of sets up these two streamers. One, um, Cosmic Kennel. And then this other streamer, uh, Urbanite. Mm -hmm. Um, And Cosmic Kennel is kind of uh, smiling a lot, very friendly, very welcoming, aimed mostly toward children. Um, And then Urbanite is kind of this larger-than-life, you know, kind of black stereotypical character. Mm -hmm. Um, And she basically just does interviews with them to figure out, like, what's up with this? You know, know, tell, tell me about your kind of strategies um for how you're doing it right because both of these are performances Mm -hmm. you know they are and not in like an irving goffman way right but quite literally they are they are playing up they're playing up characters on the stream in order to make themselves appeal to a predominantly white twitch audience Mm -hmm. and that's kind of part of this conversation here too is that what are the methods and strategies that these black male streamers are using in order to appeal to the dominant, you know, hegemonic hegemonic is a word that, that uh, I don't think we've used very much so far, but shows up throughout this book, these hegemonic ideals or, or, uh, th- this kind of structure of power that exists on the internet, particularly on Twitch, how do, um, black streamers get access to it and how do they maintain it? And, and so performance is obviously a big part of this cosmic kennel, real happy, friendly, um, smiley, welcoming Mm -hmm. is the word that gets used a lot um i think you quoted here safe and smiling Mm -hmm. Uh, and safe shows up a whole lot too and urbanite uh plays up the stereotypes and you wrote down um uh the quote here right uh he says no matter what i do folks are going to be uncomfortable i'm black so i do what makes me laugh i perform Mm -hmm. um and so you know it's two kind of strategies or 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 uh, tactics for negotiating how to capture a white audience, and then um, you know, I, and I don't, I don't have a sense if these are full time streamers if they make a living on Twitch, um, but but certainly they they do it as a substantial part of their life. Mm-hmm. Anything else to say here in this uh, chapter? Uh, no, I think that uh, kind of ties us up because it, we we end with a, a different version of you know what does it mean to uh, like be black in kind of virtual in in public space, but this time it's virtual public space. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of drawing distinctions here between uh, the public performance of blackness, mm-hmm. um, having to be black in pl- public, I guess, and then um, how that maybe gets changed or is more pluralistic or maybe more open in private spaces, uh, you know, in, in um, not just of the home, but like the, the, the black experience, you know, a group chat of only black men, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's something here in the, that also continues throughout the book, right? Which is that somewhere in here, there's a kernel being held of um, uh, self-direction, self-affirmation, right? Like, how does one exist as a black person on the internet without compromise? Mm-hmm. And is it possible? And I mean, it seems like no, mm-hmm. obviously, right? Because of the way that racialization happens. Um, but, you know, Gray is holding out for that, right? Of, of how people are able to live the life that they want to live and not be, you know, uh, constantly, you know, violated by the implied whiteness of a lot of these spaces. Mm-hmm. Chapter four. Me too. Me for black women and misogynoir. Yeah. So this begins uh, with Gray giving a lengthy uh, description of her playing a game of Gears of War, uh, where she eventually goes on mic. And the second the other players, I think they're on her team, realize uh, she is a black woman. Um, I'm the the gates are open right and they just start hurling the the worst invective and insults at her uh so this is again uh to to touch on something that you said earlier right like we've read plenty of books that talk about like the the toxicity of gaming communities uh or uh the types of harassment that happens but that also, I think, very often gets talked about in a general way, like, oh, there's lots of gendered or racial harassment on on these gaming platforms. Very rarely do we get kind of this narrative straight up of like, here are the specific things that are being said to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and I just think I think that's important, right? Because if we're going to do game studies... Yeah, I mean, specificity is important. And and the other thing, too, is that under all abstractions, right, under all theorizations of games, um, you know, under all of the, like, definitional fights about what is a game and is the magic circle real and, you know, whatever, right? Underneath all of those things, this is happening mm-hmm. still, right? And I think that's an important um thing to hold in our mind that's really kind of hard to do, especially when we're reading maybe the more theoretically dense work, right? Um, but, you know, every, in, in the moment of debating whether Kawa's categories of games are useful or not, right, uh, there's a black woman being screamed mm-hmm. at, um, you know, for for no reason on Gears of War somewhere mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and I think that maybe something that this book kind of puts pressure on us to do, and I say us in the sense of like game studies folks, right, is to to be able to think of it, to be able to come up with theories that can speak to both of those mm-hmm. things, right? I don't think everyone has to become a social scientist. I'm not going to become one, but I do think that there is a implicit charge in this book uh, in order to create uh, game studies work that speaks to this in some kind of way um, and actually deals with the reality of the ways that. Even if systems, well, I mean, I would say that game systems always have race written into them, right? Just as all other structures of power do. Um, and uh, But 
uh, trying to articulate how that works, right? I mean, I, there, there's no there's no abstract game system that is not at some pl- in some place uh, running directly into racialized, gendered, whatever mm-hmm. systems um, of you know subjectivity production uh, and violence. And so, um, you know, I, I think that I think there's a as I said a charge here for us to kind of take that seriously. Sorry, it's a little bit of a um, um, uh, detour, but the the language that's used to talk about this is misogynoir. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of compounded, specifically anti-blackness and uh, misogyny that happens to black women, particularly on mm-hmm. the internet. Yeah, and uh, a big example of this uh, for Gray is when she we returned to Gamergate, which has come up a couple of times at this point. Um, but uh, here, the story that comes out is, so when Gamergate starts, there are pri- there's a private forum or maybe um, a couple of private forums that are started by uh, women and, and largely white women to sort of talk through what is going on in terms of the harassment that they're experiencing on social media uh, and, you know, maybe organize some sort of pushback and figure out, you know, what, what are we going to do about this? And there are black women who are also on these forums uh, who are wanting to bring up their, ex- like, not just, you know, the the sort of like, uh, like misogyny that they're experiencing, but sort of the specifically like racialized misogyny that they're experiencing. And the mm-hmm. white women who are running this forum or these forums um, uh, accuse the the uh, black women of uh, trying to kind of like divide the movement, right? By introducing a term that doesn't really uh, affect them personally, right? Uh, like that this is sort of like a, a thing for we are all women first and foremost, that uh, that this is this is the angle at which we need to push back on Gamergate, even though these uh, black women in these discussions are, you know, being like, well, here, here are all of the racist and misogynist things that are being said to me. Uh, and sort of the, mm-hmm. the tension that emerges in kind of the the response to Gamergate because of this. Yeah, and, and something that we um, that we didn't bring up, and it comes up a couple of times in this book, and I think it was in the introduction, is uh, uh, Gray brings in W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, quote from, I think, The Souls of Black Folk of uh, what does it mean mm-hmm. to be a problem? You know, he's speaking directly about the kind of black experience in America. And and so that's, you know, kind of a very famous phrase in in black studies and I think cultural studies as well. Um, but but this here, I think, is a really good example of it. Right. Or, or example of what that question gets at, because it's not just a problem in the sense blackness is not just a problem in the sense of whiteness, normalized whiteness runs into it. And then, you know, uh, Gamergate comes up with all these kind of, um, uh, you know, anti-black memes, right? It's that specifically the the political organizing space that is ostensibly on the side, mm-hmm. right, of these black women is functionally excluding, uh, you know, uh, the, the lever that they want to, to kind of lean on in order to make political change happen, right? And that's, you know, in this case, specifically Black Lives Matter, right? So it's not only, blackness here is not only just a problem in the sense of uh, whiteness is appearing and trying to get rid of it. It's that uh, even the political allies Mm -hmm. cannot conceive of them as any, these black women, as anything other than a problem. Um, And, uh, you know, and so that's what this chapter is kind of oriented around, right? Is trying to figure out or, or trying to speak to, uh, that reality and kind of um, 
you know, making it clear. And, and the big example in this chapter for me, um, or the big kind of anecdote that gets worked through is this, um, streamer tasty diamond Mm -hmm. reading the, the announcement trailer for freedom cry, the Assassin's Creed for standalone game that came out or expansion pack slash standalone game. It's kind of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that game is about, um, a, a character from Assassin's Creed for Adewale, who, uh, about halfway through that game is like, bye, I got stuff to do. I'll see you later. <laughs> and, and he just <laughs> leaves and he goes into his own game basically in his like expansion pack game. It's what happens whenever I leave the room. <laughs> yeah. Bye. And then it's like, you know, Michael's expansion pack where he he's like cooking dinner and you know, it's, it's a Sims game. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, you know, the, when this gets announced, uh, it's with this trailer that is specifically, you know, um, you know, gray walks through the whole thing kind of shot by shot, but, um, it's uh, a black woman who's chained up and her child is stolen from her and then he's enslaved and he kills a white slave owner, but it's not, or maybe an overseer. Um, but it's not shown, right. It like cuts to black when that's happening and then he's escaping, and going mm-hmm. to and freedom cries about um, kind of going around the Caribbean and um, freeing slaves on slave plantations. Um, but uh, yeah, so Gray walks through this kind of bit by bit experience that Tasty Diamond, or, or you know, I don't know, visual walkthrough of of the trailer. I don't know. How would you describe what's what's happening in this? Uh, well, what, what's happening is uh, I think uh, Tasty Diamond is streaming her reaction to the trailer. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and Gray is kind of like walking through both the trailer and kind of like the trailer itself, and then also Tasty Diamond's like commentary on the trailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's it's a very interesting, like, when I think about, as someone who, you know, sometimes writes about, like, performance and does performance studies, it's very interesting for me to think about exactly, like, the layers of things that are sort of happening simultaneously here and are being described and how they're all kind of, like, because, like, what, what uh, she's doing as a streamer, right, is, I, I don't know because I don't have the video or anything, but it seems that she is, like, pausing the video and then like talking to her audience Mm -hmm. yeah right because she's because you know it's it's normal like live stream reaction stuff where she's like oh did you see that uh you know and so on and so forth but then she'll also like it seems like she is pausing the trailer and then sort of unpacking for the audience like this is why this matters to me Mm -hmm. right like this is why this is important Yes, and uh, uh, and Gray is specifically pointing out even like the language that she's using. I didn't write it down, but it's something like basically it's basically sit down and shut up, but put it in a, yes. in a different way. Uh, um, but but yeah, th- th- these specific language forms even matter here, right? Because they're for they're ways of calling attention. Oh, it's it's right. sit your ass down. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a uh, it's yeah. I think she connects it with testifying. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and specifically black mothers um, mm-hmm. you know, using this kind of language, but, um, but but yeah. So so and it's this kind of thing. She ends up calling this a intersectional counterpublic, and she actually draws really close attention to the way that Tasty Diamond um, uses this uh, it, because she's specifically streaming on YouTube. YouTube gives better controls on like how people mm-hmm. interact with you. And so apparently, uh, you know, there's some streams where Tasty Diamond explicitly says, like, this is for black women only, and then will um, turn off the comments, I think, 
and maybe turn off there might have been another like mode of interaction from the audience that gets turned off but but you know uh, uh gray says you know i think or she says in the normal sphere of things we would see that as like um bad because it limits the audience engagement but actually you know it's the power to control this space um that kind of shows how streaming platforms work um mm-hmm. you know on some level um and then the power to do that and just to monologue as a black woman is you know one very rare uh mm-hmm. and two a powerful thing kind of in the gaming space uh, of mm-hmm. doing so that's the intersectional counter public part of it right is that uh the the tech platform the movie trailer not movie but the game trailer um, and the, this kind of performance of education or, or you know, a, a monologue, all of these are happening at one time and they are speaking to an audience that is not the normal gamer, right? The quote unquote normal gamer of the implied white male. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this is the part too, I, I wrote this question in my notes and I think I actually have a better answer to it now, but, you know, throughout this book so far, there, there's been this um, critique of, um, you know, of black of black death in social media as content, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, uh, there there are a few citations for different people talking about it. um, uh, And basically that, that, you know, black death is consumed predominantly by white people on social, um, uh, social media. And Mm -hmm. it's its own kind of, you know, thing to look at in the way that like YouTube videos are a thing to look at. Um, and you know, this is something that's being critiqued across the board right now. Um, uh, Frank Wilderson in, in his recent Afro pessimism has, has, uh, a few pages on it too. Lots of people are writing about it. Um, and what's interesting to me here is that, I mean, freedom cry that this trailer in particular is, you know, this almost definitional example of black slave suffering consumed as content, maybe not the whole thing, right? Not the whole game, but certainly this trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, is this kind of, um, you, you got to depict the, you know, the absolute violence of slavery in order to like work through it or whatever for white audiences. Mm-hmm. And so what's so interesting about this to me is that it, how that kind of core, uh, of, of black suffering as visual culture, right. How that changes so radically in these two different examples. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can imagine a, uh, uh, you know, a white streamer reacting to the same thing and being like, oh, this is so rad. This is so cool. The way that, you know, he, you know, this kind of bootstrap narrative with slavery attached to it, as mm-hmm. opposed to the way that Tasty Diamond is talking about it, which is like, this is important historical content and things for thing, or things for people to be thinking about. And also at the same time, uh, Tasty Diamond talking about how, you know, I know this is probably not, not how the game's going to be, but it's important to talk about these things. Right, because like I mean, one of the one of the things, if not maybe the thing that I think ends up seeming seems the most important uh, for Tasty Diamond about the the trailer is that it'll it gives her an opportunity to like point out like, hey, here's a representation of like the violence that uh, the system of slavery did on families. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is not at all what that what you said, the the bootstrap narrative uh, that that a, that a white streamer might have gotten out of this. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And so there's this kind of, I, I think the example is really uh, interesting uh, just because it kind of demonstrates the how those images, which kind of get critiqued across the board for being shared, right, um, by, by a lot of different people, that, that 
you know, this is maybe obvious, but where they land matters a whole lot. But but I think that what Gray is giving us is a whole media ecology where they land, and it has a radically different kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, produced cri- criticism, right? Or or uh, you know, it does something differently in the space, mm-hmm. um, and it's not reducible to just the image itself. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. You want to go to chapter five? Yeah, chapter five is uh, called Tech Fail from Intersectional Inaccessibility to Inclusive Design. Uh, and this begins with a, a really interesting, uh, another anecdote from Gray. And that's actually, you know, if it's not clear, right, the, the, the stories that show up here are not just these conversations that, uh, that Gray's narrators are having among themselves. Like, there are things that happen to her and happen with, like, her social group that she talks about as sort of being in conversation or part of the, the larger system of the, uh, or the larger sort of, like, field of conversations that she's interested in drawing our attention to with this book. So mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, a couple of friends come to visit Gray uh, at her gaming lab. And there is a deaf friend among this group who, and they're like, oh, let's play some games. And uh, the the deaf friend, um, her name is Kim, she, they're like, oh, here, play like Assassin's Creed 4, I think. There are, there are so many Assassin's Creeds in this book. Yeah, yes. In, in the world. This is Assassin's Creed 4. Okay. <laughs> yes. In the world, but also this book. So yeah, anyway, one of the Assassin's Creed games. Um, and it begins on a ship. And at first, things are going okay, uh, because there are, like, the the game has subtitles. But then, you know, because of uh, a kind of oversight in in the way that this game was designed, uh, in this tutorial mission, after a certain point, the the subtitles aren't showing up for what I'm assuming is kind of like a a sort of random ambient uh, NPC dialogue that nonetheless has important tutorial uh like goals in it right so there are like characters around the player character who are telling your character what to do but their dialogue isn't subtitled um Mm -hmm. so kim can't uh like she she doesn't know what to do uh and then like her 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 ship starts getting blown up and uh she also cannot ask the the people who are around her for help because she's holding a controller so she can't sign uh, and it just it becomes this, you know, perfect example of how quickly this kind of thing just, com- just turns around entirely and and discloses how inaccessible it is. Yeah. Um, and anyone who has ever worked in the game lab uh, has had not this exact experience, but an experience like it. I promise. I, I certainly uh, when I was doing my Ph.D., I worked in, a, you know, a, a lab where we were doing weekly gaming events and uh i i would say probably twice a semester we ran into something like this you know it is uh, you know part of the reason for telling the story from gray right is that it is baked into games all of these like modes of exclusion um and i i've run into it myself many many times um and so i i was reading this the whole time being like yep mm-hmm. yep <laughs> this is like exactly how it happens um and yeah, so she couldn't, uh, you know, the, the Kim, the person who shows up here, right, you know, can't can't even ask for help mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because she can't put the thing down. Um, and so it's you get the sense that everyone there in that moment uh, is like, oh, shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, God, games. Um, and but then she kind of spins this into, uh, I, I think, a broader point about 
uh, questions of representation here as well, right? Because Kim asks her, um, well, you know, tell me about some game characters or can you tell me about any disabled game characters? And Gray can't come up with any. Mm -hmm. Um, And then goes into this kind of conversation about Lester from Grand Theft Auto V, who has a mobility uh, disorder of some sort. Yeah, I I just I want to point out because I I love how she phrases this uh, when she talks about, uh, you know, Lester from Grand Theft Auto V, a, quote, franchise that features poor representations of most populations. That is the nicest way. It's just it's it's very much like, uh, yep. mm -hmm, okay. um but but yeah basically just kind of working through this example of lester as you know he's um he has a disability and but also is kind of like a huge jackass on top of that well it's Um, like it it does the i mean it's a very grand theft auto thing um but it's also part of like a a trope in in i think the larger culture right which is that like his his uh physical disability has like uh, uh made him a bad person right like he has like turned away from the world uh, and become bitter yeah. and evil. Uh, and then she also talks about how, you know, aside from this, uh, and she goes through a couple of examples, like the majority of characters with disabilities who show up in games are also just like they're they're like former soldiers or combatants, right? People who have like lost limbs in combat and now have prosthetics. Which is, again, a very yeah. specific way of like formulating most of your representations of disability. Yeah, you know, that's a big plot point in Call of Duty. I think Advanced Warfare mm-hmm. was that one. Um, but, you know, you kind of lose an arm um, in first person and then, like, getting the prosthetic is a big big part of the game. Um, oh, I, I guess I missed this quote that I wrote down, but this is kind of, like, the angle of the thing. And this is the, the kind of question. This is where she comes to after um, the kind of uh, uh, issues around deafness that happen here, right? So this is on 124. She says, quote, the presence of black folks in gaming makes whiteness more visible. The presence of women makes men and their behaviors more visible. The presence of the differently abled makes clear the boundaries and exclusionary practices of ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's kind of a useful marker for the rest of this chapter and maybe for the whole book um, on the whole, right? Which is that these, these instances of these particular players um, reveals in the ways in particular how they're not able to interact with, with these systems in certain ways reveals the assumptions of the system. Mm-hmm. I know that's kind of like a basic point, but I think that that is one that it's useful to be reminded of, right? That it's not that these people are out of sync. And this is maybe going back to what you were talking about, about who we choose to center earlier uh, when we were talking, Michael. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, when these people are having difficulty, it is not about them. Mm-hmm. It is about the system being resistant to including them. Right. Um, and for arbitrary reasons, right? There, There is no other than, I mean, well, this maybe is not arbitrary, right? But other than the whole total distribution of power in society, <laughs> <laughs> there's no reason these people can't be included. But, but that's literally it, right? The, the moment where people are not being included, we are seeing the resistance of social structures of power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're seeing them run into them. And so that's why these examples are important is that they tell us what it means to, you know, in the Sarah Ahmed way. Right. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be included? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. And that that speaks to uh, kind of the biggest uh point of discussion in this chapter, which is the uh, the Xbox Connect slash like natal, as it was called early on. Or uh, was mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Natal. Did they call it Natal? OK, whatever. I'm glad they went I with Connect. So. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't you want little the little the little baby. Like I don't know what the thought was with that, but anyway, um, uh, yeah. So there's. This takes up um, sort of the back half of this chapter, uh, a large discussion of the the like E3 like, trailer for for the Kinect. Um, mm-hmm. And when I and it's like Gray's response to it, right? Sort of her her notes kind of moment by moment reactions, her thoughts on things. Uh, and I also like after a moment, it feels almost like like reading her description of it. It feels like almost like a fever dream. Um, but I, mm-hmm. and I was like, this is really interesting. And I went back and I watched the trailer and the trailer is like super weird and kind of, uh, just it, like there are, there are lots of moments in Gray's write-up where she is confused. Like she's not quite sure like what's happening or what's trying to be communicated about this product. Um, and like, yeah, the trailer is actually very confusing. Like there are tons of moments where you're just like, wait, what is this thing? What am I doing? Um, <laughs> And it just it feels like the feeling of it is so weird 11 years later or whatever. (laughs) Uh, But the a lot of the things that Gray ends up, you know, sort of pointing out is like uh, the the main characters, quote unquote, of this trailer are a well, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of distinct white people um, who you see interacting with the connect in various ways. Uh, and then the trailer at the end, it reveals like, you know, it's and they're they're different types of people, right? Like it's a teenage girl and a teenage boy and a, you know, adult man and an adult woman. Uh, and then the end of the trailer kind of it all comes together and it's like, oh, they're a family. And this is, uh, you know, the like home entertainment system. And this is why everyone in the family is using the connect for whatever thing they're they're using it for playing games, but also doing like video calls. And as Gray is pointing out, right, there's uh, a lot of assumptions being made here about uh, who has the types of space that's necessary, like who has the space in a house that is necessary to set up a uh, like camera that is going to let you do motion controlled video games that are it's going to require you to kind of like, you know, dance around in front of the television. Right. Who can who can do that mm-hmm. physically, but also like who has the space for that? Who, what, what assumptions are we making about, um, like the ways that families divvy up space in their homes, right? Are you allowed to do this sort of thing in your sitting room? Or is that the sort of thing where there's, there's a room, she talks about this right in, in, uh, she says, you know, it's not uncommon in a black family to have, uh, a, a room that is special just for like company coming over, right? There wouldn't mm-hmm. be a room where you could do something like this with the connect, uh, and then, of course, the Connect itself has issues with uh, recognizing like black skin tones, black and brown skin tones uh, when it launches. And, and that's sort of well documented. But then her kind of like ending on the Connect is also like, but but, you know, in addition to all that, uh, when Kim had her problem in the gaming lab, when she came to visit, we busted out the Connect and she could play that game. No problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's exactly that sort of. uh this the connect is by no means perfect not in its conception not in who it was clearly made for in in kind of the the sort of imagined demographic uh, of the people who were going to use this device uh but it nevertheless allows accessibility in this other way to people who otherwise weren't going to be able to uh play a video game yeah the um the conversation she's having with these narrators about um trying to make the connect work 
like you can just feel the frustration mm-hmm. on the page right because because you know the i think it's a i think it's a guy who's like yeah so i even moved into a different room and turned all the lights on and tried to make it work and it just will not work mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really appreciate here because, you know, the narrative around, uh, the connect, I think, I, I think Microsoft won this narrative, which is, um, you know, the connect comes out and, uh, there are all these reports, right. Of people with dark skin tones, it just not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then all these articles come out and they say, well, you know, actually, if you put it in the right room with the right light, uh, it works just fine, uh, for everybody. And uh, people with darker skin tones are continuing to have issues with it. Um, and I think in the broader public, at least when I, uh, you know, I, I taught, um, you know, game design for, for a few years, I taught a history of the games industry. And when I would go to look for articles about this, it was articles from the time and then articles after the fact being like, and that was fixed. Hmm. Um, you know, that that was a problem that wasn't really a problem in the end. Um, and. What I really like about, you know, the way that Gray writes about this is she is deeply unwilling to concede, right, that the, that it, it was, you know, has a racial bias in mm-hmm. it um, or, or the, the technology and how it is developed contains racial bias implicit in the way that it kind of frames how you look at a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and this is on 145. She says, uh, I move design justice toward a discussion of not only design principles and intention, but also design consequences. Um, and design justice is kind of a key term for the end of the chapter here. But I think that's such an important kind of thing to to maintain that the, that it wasn't just a problem for a minute and then it went away, but that it has design consequences on or it has consequences on the people who wanted to play the game at the moment and continues to have consequences. And just because Microsoft essentially won a PR battle uh, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that that racialized technology, you know, wasn't racialized to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter six querying intersectional narratives claiming space and creating possibilities this uh this chapter the the uh opening is uh is very funny to me it's yeah so it's a um is this a clan that has it's a, it's a group i think of xbox live players i mentioned them earlier in the episode there's a a, a group of um queer black women um who have like an xbox live clan and i think it's uh, mm-hmm. a couple of these people reacting to the reveal of the far cry new dawn key art mm-hmm. and it is all of their instantaneous like theory crafting so the the key art uh in case you haven't seen the i haven't seen it recently it's um two young uh black girls uh sitting on like an it's 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 the post like weird apocalypse far cry timeline right so they're like sitting on a couch outdoors and they both have like one has a crossbow and one has a gun and they are uh getting ready to shoot this uh this white man who has been like strapped to the hood of a car um <laughs> like in the far background yeah uh uh and uh it's all these women who have like they're just seeing it and they're like theory crafting about like the <laughs> stories behind these characters and what's going on and like clearly having a lot of fun um mm-hmm. really really enjoying and, themselves and like uh i think you know in 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 a move that's familiar to many people online these days right the one of the overriding questions for these women is like how you know are they lesbians like how how queer are they right like are they how are they queer like me so on and so forth like it's uh uh 
uh, immediately a move not only to just sort of like theory craft but also to establish like uh, paths of sort of like recognition or relatability yes and and these women too I, I, because yeah they've they've come up a couple times so far right but but they are specifically um uh puerto rican right they say ethnically they're puerto rican and that uh, most if not all of them are lesbians right uh yeah i mean i think yeah i think it is like uh yes i think so but that's the but the interesting part about it too or the reason i bring that up right is that all of that like all of those identity categories immediately get kind of stapled onto these characters Mm -hmm. because they're like no they're sisters and they're like no they're lesbians and they're like well you know what they'll probably make them lesbians (laughs) because that's how games work you know that's how so there's all this kind of stuff it's not just like i mean the theory crafting is very funny to me but it's not just that right it's the it's that um they immediately they interpret it the way they want to interpret it, and then they immediately think, "Well, this is how games go, so this is what's going to happen." Right? Right. There's a, there's um, the the immediate disenchantment of like, here's all the ways this is going to disappoint me. Yes, right. Like, yes. <laughs> like here's here's what I wish this was. Here's what it's probably going to be. Maybe it'll end up being kind of like somewhere between those two. But <laughs> yes. Um, and and so you know, Gray at the end of the thing, uh, you know, calls it a queering. Right, mm-hmm. uh, that that they are interpreting through this kind of queer community that they have, they're interpreting this key art and just coming to you know this plurality of different uh, opinions and perspectives on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then kind of move this, this chapter moves into I think a discussion of um, of the way that marginalization happens online, in particular the way that this group of women. Uh, when they play online, how they are, how they interact with both white men and black men in particular, um, and how those groups, I mean, basically are just shitty to them, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, with, for for lack of a better <laughs> phrasing of it, right? I mean, uh, and, and there's something here, this is, I think, weirdly enough, where the argument about online versus offline identity is made most clearly or maybe most sharply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I really like this phrase is on 152 gray says that um, being marginalized online is it, this is the quote is quote a virtual manifestation of physical reality mm-hmm. um, that someone who, you know, sounds black on the internet can't not be racialized, right? That the, the fantasy of online interaction is just impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as one is raced or as soon as one is gendered and, and kind of, Red is that on the internet, a whole host of other kind of, you know, anti-queer, anti-black, misogynistic, um, all these kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, modes of violence get deployed immediately, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and Gray really wants to hold on to um, hold on to that plurality of experience and that plurality of of kinds of violence that get deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, she. Uh, she says on 155, right, that so often uh, these women and, um, you know, I think I think broadly, uh, you know, uh, black people in America, I don't know about internationally, but at least in America, right, the narrative is that that one is is black in front of everything else. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, this comes up all the time. Billy Porter said this a few weeks ago. Right. Kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, in an interview that, uh, you know, before before anything else, you're black if you're black. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Gray is saying, actually, all these things are happening at one time and you can't just neatly separate one from the other. 
because the minute you are understood as racialized or gendered or whatever, the other things that can be stapled onto you, the other violences that can kind of be entrained into that, they are coming right behind it. And in order to understand that system of violence, you have to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would say that um, uh, this chapter, I think, actually illustrates uh, most pointedly, I think, the ways that the online and the offline intersect, right? In, in precisely mm-hmm. the way that this book is arguing that they do intersect. Uh, but for the reasons that you just discussed, and then also, for instance, um, there's a, a discussion of, you know, not all of these uh, women are out to their families. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they primarily, like, socialize with other queer women on Xbox Live or online. And specifically, Xbox Live here becomes a, a useful tool because they're, like, the people they live with or their families don't think of it as like they don't think of it in the way that so uh there's one girl who talks about um i don't remember the exact story but essentially right she says something like if if i were like on the computer and i got up and walked away and i left uh facebook messenger logged in like my mom would know that if she went over and started like looking through my facebook messenger like she she would have some idea that there would be like personal conversations going on in there right like stuff that could be found out Um, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily the way that, uh, the people that they live with think of Xbox live, which can just be like, it's just, oh, that's just their video game. Um, yeah. Interestingly enough, right. And I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think this is flagged in the chapter. Whereas for the rest of the book, you know, as we were saying at the beginning of the episode, gaming is kind of like sometimes almost like just the excuse to be there uh-huh. right you know like like gaming is the thing that brings these people together but that's not really the the kind of core content of what's happening and certainly not what gray is interested in mm-hmm. um you know in these conversations here is actually where kind of gaming comes back it's it's almost like the kind of um you know social function of the the social um uh not precariousness is not the word that I'm looking for, right? But the mar- marginalizedness, mm-hmm. I guess, of gaming as a practice, right? Or as a as a hobby is the thing that gives them the ability to have these conversations and to be more free, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, at least in this kind of group of friends. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, you know, that's like a, a perfect example of the one of the consistent points that Gray wants to argue here, right? Which is that Xbox. So when when Xbox Live uh, is designed and when they uh, come up with the the private party chat feature, the thinking there and we can connect here actually uh, with uh, Shira Chess's uh, designed identity. Right. Um, The -hmm. thinking there was not aha by by enabling private party chat. Xbox Live will allow like uh, queer black women to have uh private discussions and forge new new communities uh that was not at all the thinking and yet nevertheless right this is what that affordance has produced Mm -hmm. and i just think it's it's a really great uh and clear example of of precisely um what intersectional tech means Uh, 100 yeah i I, what's interesting is that uh to me and this you know to to give a little um you know i try to give a perspective on how we read these books um when we do it right but as i was reading this chapter and i read this chapter last before we recorded well this in the conclusion last before we recorded while reading uh i was like ah oh, this is you know there's some interesting new stuff that's in this chapter but it's re- i really felt like it was a lot of repetition of, of stuff before 
But actually, now after talking about it and kind of talking about the whole book, I think that this is the best condensation mm -hmm. of the whole argument of the book. I feel like all the pieces of the book are really well represented in this chapter. Um, and, you know, if, and if you were thinking about teaching it, for example, right, I think you could probably with a little bit of, you know, uh, maybe terminology up front mm -hmm. explaining, you could probably teach this chapter on its own. Mm -hmm. um, and and have students have a really kind of robust discussion about it. Um, I taught this this book, as I said earlier this semester, I taught there are, are parts of it. I taught the first two chapters, the intro and chapter one. Um, I think that if I were going to go back and do it, you know, well, I think actually I would try to teach the whole book, but if I couldn't do that, then I would teach, I think, the intro in chapter six. I think they give a really good, mm -hmm. you know, perspective on the whole thing. Um, but I'm sure uh, Kushana would prefer you to buy the whole book. So uh, think about doing that. <laughs> um, are we ready to go to the, uh, the conclusion? Yeah, sure. The conclusion. Um, the conclusion, uh, you know, to me, it was really about situating this in uh, the broader cultural perspective and really seems to be signaling uh, Gray's next project, which I don't really know anything about. Um, but I get a sense that it is not about games. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you were to ask me based on where this book ends um, and the kinds of questions that it's asking, it seems to suggest that maybe games and focusing only on games is only going to give us a partial story mm -hmm. um and that we really kind of need to go beyond games in order to understand how you know racialization and these technologies intersect with one another um you know uh, and she kind of puts this big list of very recent work you know uh, toward the beginning of the conclusion here so um intersectional internet programmed inequality distributed blackness uh, beyond hashtags, racial politics, and black digital networks, black code, race after technology, and then algorithms of repression. And those are all like fairly popular books that have come out pretty recently um, that kind of address questions of, of race and tech. Um, but, but those seem to be the guiding principles for where to go after this. And you'll notice that none of, none of these have games in the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, the ending is very much a conversation, like the conclusion is very much a conversation about tech, tech itself. Mm -hmm. And in the way that games have functioned here has been kind of like the uh, the the ledge that you can like grab onto to talk about tech more broadly. Uh, and mm -hmm. it seems like we've kind of like pulled ourselves up onto onto the ledge and uh, there's other discussions to be had. There's a lot of talk about uh you know, uh, social media and how identities are performed and maintained there, for instance, uh, which has been, of course, like in the background or uh, threaded through this book, but definitely seems to be taking kind of center stage here at the conclusion. Yeah. And, and we get, you know, even more kind of warnings against um, a centering of of whiteness in a broad sense. So white spectatorship, you know, the, the kind of argument that we've talked about around black death on social media, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Gray is very uh, explicit about saying that by, by centering whiteness, that is the version of blackness that you get, which is mostly blackness to be consumed, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, the, in this kind of really horrifying way when in fact, and then she lists a bunch of different hashtags, right. Of, of ways that, um, you know, uh, black people on Twitter in particular have been just sharing the plurality of their life that is not defined in relationship to whiteness, mm -hmm. um, but is self-determining and, um, you know, uh, 
you know, more complete, you know, it's a more complete uh, depiction of what it means to be black that is not just uh, in service to or in relationship to uh, a dominant narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, then puts that in conversation with uh, the current uh, political regime and particularly kind of um, white um, um, uh, reaction mm -hmm. to it. Um, and that we just have, you know, in some, my feeling from the conclusion here is like, you just have to change the way you're looking at these things if you want to find out about how the world really works, mm -hmm. right? If you if you are constantly caught on the uh, the relationship between, or if you're constantly only looking at violence, right? And that's not to exclude violence from the thing, but if the only thing you care about, right, is when violence is occurring, you are missing out on the actual lives of, of black people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're not going to be able to theorize around that. And you're not really going to be able to talk about this tech if you're not talking about how it's used and kind of detourned away from its implied usage. Mm -hmm. um, this is on 166, uh, quote, to provide any kind of answers to the questions posed, we must gain a sense of groups of groups's capacity to shape a technology. Mm hmm. Right. This tech is morphing around the way that people use it. And that if if you're only focusing on a thin slice, uh, then you're you're gonna miss it. And you're gonna miss how people are actually living their lives. I think that's a great way of putting it. A great way of sort of tying off what this book is is trying to get us to understand. Yeah. I think I think the the I think it's good. I like it. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. Well, do you have any uh, final thoughts here, Michael, in general sense? Uh, I don't think so. Good book. We're, good book. Great book. I think people should read it. I think definitely it is a, um, you know, um, a good old game studies book to read. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I really hope, um, I, I hope that uh, later game studies books take some of the cues from this uh you know, not only in sort of talking about uh, a race and everything, but also just that some of the things that I've been mentioning where it's like, think like that realization of I have read about, uh, you know, harassment in academic game texts so much, but none of it has ever really been sort of forthright about what that constitutes. Right. Uh, yeah. And and I think that that is it's it's. Uh, it's important for us to have that uh, uh, sort of acknowledge that moving forward as, as a discipline. Yeah. 100%. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think the worst way for this book to be engaged with in game studies would be for it to just be the citation of, you know, the race and games book or one of the race and games books, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Tara fickles, the race card also has come out recently, which, which deals with, um, how, uh, Game studies deals with that, and that's not to say that these questions haven't been. I, you know, I think maybe, um, maybe on accident, I've implied that that hasn't been represented. But you know, um, uh, Lisa Nakamura's work is huge, hugely influential in games around uh, questions of race, um, but also as a more an abstracting system, right? So uh, her work on gold farmers is has been uh, really important in the racialization uh, work there, uh, cyber types, um, but uh, you know, so. The reason I'm saying the worst thing that could happen is for this to be the kind of like laundry list citation. And I really think that responsible engagement with this book uh, is actually engaging with the ideas and not just citing it as like, you know, here's the book on race and games, because I think this is 
uh, making substantial contributions both to the theory of uh, you know theories of how race and games interact with one another mm-hmm. um how games have racialization as a part of them um and then also in actual intersectionality theory i think this is moving the bar uh there in ways that like i said earlier if you're not in that literature it might be kind of hard to pick up pick up on but but i think are important um what's uh do we know what our next book is uh no we do not uh and i'm not sure we we could do it on air but we could also discuss it later yeah let's discuss it later because i don't even have an idea of of uh what we're gonna do next time normally you know we've had a conversation beforehand and we've got a couple things in our head but Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't had a talk yet so We'll find out next time. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on twitter.com at Warren is dead. You can go to twitter.com slash ranged touch or at ranged touch in order to find out uh, everything that we're up to over there. If you like the show and you want to support it, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. There's a little description in the, or no, there's a link in the description down below um if you want to be able to click on that and go to it uh for three dollars a month you can have access to our notes for the show so if you want to look at the page numbers and things that we talk about there that don't come up on the show you can absolutely see that at five dollars a month you get access to all kinds of other goodies uh, including uh podcasts that danny and i do every month where we're just kind of talking about stuff and uh the bonus episodes for our other show or one of our other shows called just king things where michael and i are reading through the works of Stephen King in publication order. Um, the next episode to come out will be coming out in a couple weeks, and it's on the stand. Uh, uh, cut. Original and cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we haven't recorded the episode yet, but uh, I will say here, it's a different book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a different book. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're interested in talking about the stand or listening to us talk about the stand or listening to us talk about lots of Stephen King books, then you can check out Just King Things, and you can also check out our, our Critical Let's Play series, uh, our Critical Play series, um, uh, Too Much Future, where uh, Michael and I are uh, playing through the Fallout games and talking about them. We are, what, two-thirds of the way through Fallout 3? I, half of the way through Fallout 3? I guess, yeah. something. I think maybe more like half. Okay. We're halfway through that game, and... Uh, just recently published the episode about following Papa Neeson across the wasteland mm-hmm. and uh, terrible VR uh, <laughs> uh, experiences. So uh, if you are uh, if you want to hear us talk about that, you can uh, check that out at youtube.com slash range touch as well as the other videos that we're doing, such as the Elsinore Let's Play that, that Michael is running mm-hmm. and some other stuff. So uh, we got a huge amount of stuff for you to check out beyond this show. Uh, and uh, you can support that. Please support that at uh, patreon.com slash range touch. I think we're ready, Michael. What's that old catchphrase? Oh, well, until next time, folks, remember that the social is predicated upon its exclusions. <laughs>